This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello and welcome to Unaided, the brand building podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome Fred Punky onto the show. Fred is a managing partner at Capital Group Holdings and owns 25 hair salons in the greater Indianapolis area. Let's get into it. Fred, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks. So it's March 2nd. Where you live? Are you closer to Purdue or University of Indiana? Kind of right in the middle in what's called IUPUI country. So it's there's a I'm in Indianapolis I'm on the north side of Indianapolis. It's a combination between the two schools. They've come together and created a joint campus in Indianapolis. Great workout room, great track facility, things like that, but kind of right in the middle. Family is more yeah. Purdue focused. So it's a big rivalry in Indiana. My father-in-law went to Purdue. I'm not a local Indiana guy, but my wife is local to the area, but she didn't go to either one. She went to Ball State. So she's a Cardinal. Got it. So, I mean, we're officially in March Madness approaching. How are you feeling? Great. About your team. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Basketball season's always a lot of fun. Indiana's a definitely a basketball state. I mean, I'm sure most people have seen the movie Hoosiers before. So that's that's a hometown favorite, of course, in this area. So <laughs> yeah, basketball's a big deal where we are. Where are you from originally, Fred? I grew up in central Illinois, right south of Springfield, Illinois, in a little small farming community. Basketball was a big deal in our town as well. We were a pretty small school, but basketball was always a lot of fun. So I played a lot of basketball and baseball. And you were a cyclist too, if I understand correctly. Yeah. When I went to college in St. Louis, I went to slew. So I'm a Billiken from St. Louis. And I got connected into an engineering company and I was doing some surveying work for a couple of years, helping an electrical company upgrade their power distribution system. And so we were out in the middle of nowhere, out in the country in farming communities. And there was a guy on the team that was a cyclist. And so I was young, ended up getting into cycling and enjoyed that for a while and have done that most of my adult life. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. So you've had such an interesting, amazing career and have still found time to be an incredible father to three, which I would love to get into how you optimize your work-life balance in order to do both. But thinking back to high school, friend, how would your friends have described high school? Probably fun to be around. I was friends with most of the people that were in, in my grade in high school. Interestingly enough, I graduated with 21 kids in my high school graduating class. So it was a pretty small community. Most people kind of seem a little surprised about that and didn't grow up in that kind of an environment. So I knew the kids that I went to school with from kindergarten through high school, all of my adult life. So we all played together in a small town of a thousand people. So it wasn't like there was these clicks that people find, even my kids in schools now where you've got three or four friends, everybody kind of hung out and spent time together. And if you did something or went to a ball game or went to somebody's birthday party, it was the same kids all the time, your entire life. And it was most of the kids in your class. It was nice from that perspective. Of course, you had little squabbles back and forth between kids for a little while, but you didn't really have a lot of options. So you always found a way to be friends. Awesome. So I understand you graduated college from 03 and doing some LinkedIn sleuthing. I see you joined Microsoft in 06. But what was your first job? What did you do first after graduating college? I went from high school to college. Two weeks after I graduated high school, I started college. I went to started in the summer and I just went year round until I graduated. And my first job, actually, I went to work for an engineering company. And I thought I wanted to do engineering. I had a computer science degree, but I thought I wanted to do engineering. And so I got into working in a civil and electrical engineering company and doing high voltage power distribution. And so I started running a survey crew and it's been 
a month in the field doing surveying. And then I'd come back in the office and spend a couple of weeks in the office and do some design work. And there were some kind of older salty guys, older salty engineers I've spent a lot of time with, and they were teaching me that business. And it was a lot of fun, but I realized I kind of really had more of a passion around the technology space. So I started transitioning into technology at that point. And you've had an incredible career in technology at Microsoft, at Dell EMC, where you've got to work closely with a favorite coworker of mine. Yeah. And now these past seven years, what I'm super interested in is your experience with Capital Group Holdings. Specifically, you're in the hair salon space now. Yeah. First off, can you tell us a little bit about your transition specifically from EMC to Capital Group Holdings? What interested you about joining the group and what did you see as the opportunity? So a bit of a workaholic and <laughs> I've always had side hustles. And it's really kind of more around money and management and the investments that I did as a single guy up until about 30, probably 35, when I started dating my wife and then looking at what do I want to do maybe long term as a kind of a family. And so to get to the point of owning a franchise takes a little bit of a kind of an interesting path because I lived in Chicago and I lived in Chicago because I looked after a global business for a long time. And so I was traveling in and out of country a lot and all over the US. And so I needed to be close to a tier one airport. And so I met some partners at Accenture, an account that I did some business with. And so developed friendships with them. And we went in together and started buying rental properties. And so I had amassed a rental portfolio in Chicago. And that was doing well. And this was all as a side hustle while I was traveling around different spots around the world doing different deals. And that was going well. I met my wife, we got married, had our first couple of kids, and then decided we were going to move out of the Chicagoland area and wanted to move closer to home here in Indiana to her family. And that was a horse trade that we made because I wanted more kids. And so in order to have more kids and us to have a happy life, we wanted to be a little bit closer to her family. So that was a fair trade. And so I couldn't be close to my portfolio in Chicago. So I wanted to sell it. So I did. And I took that capital from the sale of that portfolio and invested it into a franchise space. And I knew I wanted to get into franchising because I knew there were some things I was good at and some things I wasn't. And based on knowing that about myself, the franchising space was a good fit. And so then it was just about finding what brand to get into and what type of franchise to get into. And so at the time, the hair space was at the time didn't really have any hair, any passion specifically around the salon space, but it's somewhat recession resilient brand. Everybody needs a haircut. Doesn't matter if the market's up or the market's down, you need a haircut. You cannot spend $5 on a fancy latte at your favorite coffee spot, but you still, if you want to be a productive member of society, you still got to get a haircut every four weeks if you're a guy or somewhere around there. So that was something that was interesting. I already knew the service industry. I'd spent most of my career in the service industry. So managing people, managing revenue, managing operations, those are all things I knew well. So that was a good fit. It was just had to learn the stylist mentality and people that work for me and then how to manage that kind of business, what the operational tempo was, things like that. So no, I needed to learn that, but that was an easy thing. To and then did it start with buying one salon? Now you're at 25. What did that trajectory look like from once you decided to get into the hair salon space now being an owner of 25 different Yeah. Brands? So I had set a goal when we were living in Chicago. I knew this is what I was going to get into. And so I signed my contracts in Chicago. And when I signed my contracts in Chicago, I signed up for a, when you get into the franchising space, you buy licenses. And so I bought three licenses at the time. 
And then getting into that in Chicago, it was a closed market. So there was no spaces available for me to do anything. It was a saturated market. So I had to either buy out a franchisee or start to build locations. And then when we decided for sure that we were going to move to Indiana, I re-signed my contracts in Indiana and added several territories into Indiana. And then within the first two months of moving to Indianapolis, I found a location to build a spot. So I started the construction there and I reached out the other franchisees in the space just to introduce myself to them. And one of the franchisees in the space had started and built four stores and wanted to sell those four stores because he wasn't focused on it. He was doing something else at the time. And so we negotiated back and forth for about a year and I put together an acquisition with him. And so I acquired his four stores and built mine at the same time. So it took about six months to build the store. So everything came online at about the same time. Regis, my franchisor, was pretty nervous about that at the time. People weren't <laughs> doing those types of things. And I assured him it wasn't going to be a problem. Now it's more commonplace to do an acquisition like that. But at the yeah. time, it wasn't. That was in 2016. Interesting. So I started right away. My first store opened. And then within 30 days, I had five open and a bigger at the time franchise. Now it's a smaller one. But at the time, it was a bigger one. That's so interesting. And you mentioned you reflected on what you were good at, what you weren't so good at, which led you down this path. Yeah. Can you double click on that a little bit? What sure. skill set best for getting into the business? Into the franchising space? Yes. It's interesting. There's so many different franchises that are out there now. I would say my experience is not a one-size-fits-all kind of a situation. I would say for those that are interested in getting into franchising, I'll kind of give you the high-level overview in my perspective and kind of being a veteran. And then I'll drill into my personal experience around it and why I did what I did. I would say in the franchising space, there's a lot of mentality around selling franchises as a part-time job you can do from home in nights and weekends. And I would say that's in some cases true, but it's going to be a pretty shoddy job if you're only doing it nights and weekends. So don't believe the hype that it's a part-time job. It's not. It's a full-time job. And if you're a workaholic like me, having two full-time jobs is not a bad deal. But the quicker you grow, you've got to start to decide where do you want to devote your time and energy into your business or into being an employee somewhere. Because I don't think it's smart to do either halfway. And so there's the mentality of what you're going to do and how you're going to operate that franchise. And that's where being a little bit of an older guy and in my late 40s, I was seasoned in being an executive and spending time in big companies looking after different businesses. And so I learned what I was good at. And I learned that there's some things I'm I'm really good at. I'm good at operationalizing a business. I'm good at figuring out how to make money. I'm good at managing money. I'm good at managing people. So I'm good at those types of things. What I learned early on in my career that I'm not good at is I'm not good at building a brand. So I'm not good at building the Acme Motor Company brand and building that brand. That's not something I have really a lot of skill or even really a lot of passion around. So I need to hire somebody to do that. And I'm also not good at marketing. I remember early in my career having conversations with marketing people and sitting around a table and talking about what we want to market for and me coming up with ideas and them just looking at me and going, that's just not going to work. So <laughs> realizing like that's something I'm not good at. So I realized in looking at that, because I'm not good at branding and I'm not great at marketing, I've gotten good at it, but I wasn't when I got into the space. Franchising was a great idea. So I wanted to get into something that had an established brand that was a recognizable brand already that I didn't have to go build. And they already had a marketing template that I could follow 
And I knew I would have to customize it for my space and my market and nothing is ever one size fits all. But at least there was a template that I could follow and people had already kind of paved that path and learned, here's some things that work and some things that don't. And so I didn't have to go and learn all of that from ground zero. So the franchising space led me or led me down the franchising space. And then it was just deciding on a brand. And to your point about focus and how it's a full-time job, you can argue that Chick-fil-A is the one of, if not the most successful franchise models, and they only let you own one, if I understand correctly. So I know the Chick-fil-A brand. I know the Chick-fil-A franchise. I went to church and still do with a guy that was the Chick-fil-A representative. I've spoken to Chick-fil-A. I liked the Chick-fil-A. When I looked at it, my kids were younger, but my kids love Chick-fil-A. I think probably like all kids. And... That is true for the most part. My neighbor actually, where we're moving, is a Chick-fil-A franchising. So you're right. For the most part, Chick-fil-A only lets you have one store. There's a couple of things that are interesting about the Chick-fil-A brand. And I'm sure there's lots of people you could bring on that can tell you more than I know about Chick-fil-A. But it's a single focus. Like you can't own anything else when you own Chick-fil-A. And you typically only own one store. And then if you're really great, you can have two stores. And if you're exceptional, they would give you three, but nobody has more than three. So it's a great business model and you can become very wealthy being a Chick-fil-A franchisee, but it's not something you can scale to have 30 stores or 20 stores or something along those lines. There's also some kind of other interesting things about Chick-fil-A and kind of how they manage the business and how franchisees play in that space and kind of your responsibility and things like that that are interesting and very rewarding in the franchisee space. So they take very good care of their franchisees. Another interesting thing about Chick-fil-A is three-day or four-day work weeks become a hotter topic. I mean, Chick-fil-A is closed on what is arguably the could be the busiest day of the week and they are still extremely successful which yeah it's an interesting you know there i mean it's interesting if you look from a marketing perspective at chick-fil-a the thing that's really interesting about chick-fil-a from a marketing perspective is that the way they market their brand is they market to moms they don't market to dads really they don't market to kids kids love the food but they market to moms and it's the mom idea of I'm busy and I don't have time to make a meal for my family, but I want to take them someplace that's wholesome and good food and it's a good corporation and deep fried chicken and deep fried French fries to serve your kids is not necessarily a great meal from a nutritional perspective. It's not horrible, but it's not necessarily the best meal that you can have. And they have nicer things on the menu, salads and stuff like that. But they've really built this brand that moms really love the Chick-fil-A brand because of what they've done in the market. They've marketed themselves that way and it's genius. And they can be closed on a Sunday and everybody thinks, well, it's a wholesome company. I go to church on, I want to come home and yeah, my kids want to stop at Chick-fil-A on the way home from church, but they're not open today because they're a good corporation. So they've done a brilliant job in building their brand. It's really incredible watching them. But I want to hear about you and your brand. So it's interesting. And we always love having claimed bad marketers on our marketing podcast, (laughs) but I think you're just being self-deprecating. All right. So 25 franchises and you're handed this marketing template to follow. Is that template specific to each local location or is that being a franchise group? Here's what you could lay out for all of your locations at large. Yeah, it's not per location. You've got to figure that out on your own because each local market operates a little bit differently. And I can give you some examples of that, but it's more of a template around things like social media. Like here's a presence on social media that you can use. Here's a presence in direct mail, shared mail, Here's these types of things that you can use. Here's a TV spots, radio spots, things like that. So in the franchising space, you have kind of two main components that you should think of from a marketing perspective. One is you have national advertising. And not all franchisors do national advertising, depending on their size and maturity in the space and 
their focus from a marketing perspective. They may or may not do national advertising. And then you have local advertising. So local advertising can be broken up based on regions and local store-based advertising. So depending on the franchise space, they might break that up differently. But when you're a franchise, you've got to kind of learn that system. Each franchise might operate a little bit differently. So you learn the system and how the money's allocated, and then you go to work. And in the franchise space, a lot of times from a national campaign perspective, they might build collateral that you can use in the local marketing space. And so figuring out how to leverage that is smart. I'll give you an example. Like we do in our space, we're about beauty. And so we have pretty people that are models. And so we have different modeling shoots that happen every couple of years. And those models change out. And so we can decide which models we want to use and which context we want to use them. Some of those contexts are restricted around how we can use them. We have to build campaigns and leverage the colors and schemes and models and pre-built media appropriately. And some of that is templatized to be able to say, here's a good idea for something on social media. And you can or can't adjust it depending on how your franchise is set up. That's really interesting. And then a little bit before we started recording, we were talking about promotions. First off, I'd love to hear your overall perspective on promotions and then dive into how many of those are driven by corporate versus what you're able to do just on a local level. So promotions are a big deal. And especially when you're fighting for a finite group of customers, right? You want to win customers from competition. Everybody's going to get a haircut. So depending on where you get that haircut is dependent on whether or not I make any money out of that haircut. And so my people in the company want to make money. And so in order to get them to make Make money, I've got to get customers in the door. And so we're spending money to drive those customers into our brands and into our stores versus competition. And our competition is doing the same thing. So figuring out who's going to win in that model is a lot of times depending on what you do from a marketing perspective and how successful you are. And so corporate and our franchise is going to spend money. So we have a national spend at the national level. And we've tried different things at the national campaign level around sponsorships with Major League Baseball. We had an MLB sponsorship for several years, which was nice. I got to go to some pretty nice games and have nice seats and things like that. But from an MLB perspective, we had all kinds of athletes that were sponsors at the national level that talked about supercuts and talked about our brand. And we would set up haircut booths at MLB games and things like that. It was a lot of fun for that kind of thing. But did that really drive a lot of customers into the store versus other areas? Don't know, but I can tell you, we don't sponsor Major League Baseball anymore. Not because any issue with MLB, just looking at the spend and was it successful in driving additional customers in the door. We used to do things like if there was a walk-off home run, then you got a free haircut. So we had different campaigns that were like that, where we would have a day of free haircuts if there was a walk-off campaign. So we tried different things like that. It comes down to being in kind of a space that you can take advantage of it as well. Like at the Major League Baseball level, we don't have a Major League Baseball team in Indianapolis. We're a basketball community. So for us, the sponsor Major League Baseball was great at the brand level. But at a local level, I had to transition that into how do we partner with localized or minor league baseball teams? And so, yeah, there was an MLB sponsorship, but we did it at the minor league team. So kind of have to transition and think on your feet a little bit in that kind of a situation. But overall, I think it was a good spend for the business, but we don't sponsor major league baseball anymore. Actually, that stopped during COVID. And now we do different things. Now we're primarily spending all of our money on online advertising right now at the national level. Interesting. Now, when you say we, you speak very much as part of Supercuts, which you are, you, a lot of them. What is your involvement in national marketing spend? Like, do other people that own different franchises have a say in how corporate invest their dollars? 
It depends on how your contracts are written. I would encourage anybody looking at franchising is this is a conversation that most don't think to ask in the initial investigation phase of the franchising is how is that money spent and allocated? And believe it or not, it can be a pretty significant amount of money that's contributed at the national level. And I won't get into values on our franchise and specifically what we contribute because I think that's more private. Anybody can look that up when you're in the franchising conversations. Is I would encourage folks to look at two points. And that is first is what do you spend in royalties and kick back as a royalty back to the franchise or and how do they spend that? And if they won't tell you, find someplace else. That should be transparent with the franchise community around how they spend that money. You're in a partnership with them long-term. It's like very much getting married. And so understand how that money is being spent. I think that's a smart conversation to have with their executive team. The second thing is from a marketing perspective is what marketing funds are kicked up from the franchisee to the franchisor and how is that money allocated and spent? And what say do you have and how that money is allocated and spent? In some franchise systems, you don't have any say at all. You don't have any say in how that money is spent. There's no committees you can serve on. There's no committees to take feedback from the franchise community and kick it up to the franchisor. It's just whatever they decide. And some of those decisions can work out very well in your favor and they're very good at what they do and you just don't need to worry about it. It's kind of a fire and forget mentality. Some of them are not and they've made bad decisions in the market and it's been detrimental to the franchise community. And I can talk about a couple of those examples if you like. But in our space specifically, we have communities that are based on brands. And so Regis Corporation, who is my franchisor, has multiple brands. And within each of those brands, they market a little bit differently. And so each of those brands that's now kind of consolidated to five different brands in North America, primarily Canada and the US, not a lot in Mexico, some, they take feedback from the franchisees around how to spend that money. But I've noticed I said they take feedback and then they make a decision on how to spend it. And not everybody's going to get on board. It's just like anything else in the community, right? You try to get as much buy-in as you can and take constructive feedback. And then you got to make a decision and do something. And you hope that's the right decision. And if it's not, react accordingly. And the thing I'll say around Regis, my franchisor from a current executive community is that they do take the feedback and they do react quickly around things that are not working and spend money, at least make an attempt to spend money wisely and try to make changes real time to be the most productive and frugal with the amount of money that they have. So I don't always agree with everything that they do. And I'm vocal about it because I'm large enough to have a voice, but I choose personally to be very selective around what committees I serve on because some of them are just productive and some of them are a waste of time. And so I'm pretty selective around what communities I spend time on and where I spend my time personally. Marketing is one where I do give a fair amount of feedback through channels and relationships that I have at the corporate level. I choose to serve on other committees other than marketing. I spend a lot of time focused on our local marketing and what works well here. And so I spend a lot of time with my vendors. I have very great vendors relationships in the local communities. And I mean, even so much so that they know exactly what I'm looking for. Like they know how I'm going to measure it. They know how I'm going to decide if it's successful and how I negotiate based on price. And so over the years, they've learned that about me and they come to those conversations prepared. So it's meaningful. So, yeah. And I'd love to zero in a little bit more on what you've seen that be successful. But first, before we do that, When thinking about the marketing funnel, everything from the top of funnel awareness all the way down to sales and returning customers, when thinking about success, what are the success metrics for corporate and what they're spending on? And what do you think of as the success metrics for what you're spending on locally? So I mentioned a little bit earlier around corporate taking feedback and some of the things that I think they've done a good job of taking feedback around and has changed over the last couple of years is around branding and what their focus should be on spending money. And the amount of money that they have 
that is substantial from a franchise perspective and the amount mm-hmm. of money that comes in. So they could do a variety of different things. And they've taken the feedback from the franchise community and focused around it. And I think they're doing good stuff now. So prior to COVID, the focus was single-minded around two things, building a brand and ensuring that the brand is protected and viable and driving new customers into the store. So sales is driven by customers. New customers is what matters. It's our job to keep them coming back. So I think it was very focused around that. And I wouldn't say that every decision that they made was the most productive around those. They tried a few different things and they were on a good path. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, we were deemed a non-essential business in the majority of the United States. And so several of our salons, whether that was a good decision or not, we can talk about that some other time, but that's what happened. And And so coming out of COVID, interestingly enough, I retained about 95% of my employees coming out of COVID. But over the years, it's been tough to recruit as we grew and tough to recruit employees. And so at the national level, we gave feedback to the franchisor to say, help us recruit employees. And so some of that national funding was spent on the employee side and helping recruit and retain employees, really more recruiting rather than retention. And that's been helpful to have some tools and things that we can use at the national level from a recruiting perspective and focusing on the brand focused towards new employees rather than customers. And so kind of an interesting dynamic coming out of COVID to see that change and how things work. And I've been quoted in a few different franchise journals and magazines around retaining employees and focusing in those areas. And that was something that was a challenge and we tried different things. And I think we have got a pretty good model now, but it's a business where we've got, we always will have, and we experience it too, more so more in line with the regular kind of community and our peers and turnover now post-COVID than we did pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, we didn't experience turnover. We just ran a very clean business. And now post-COVID, it's things have changed. And so we have more turnover now than what we used to in the past. So having that focus on recruiting has been helpful. And then you want me to transition into a localized marketing or... Well, a quick follow-up question there. When a consumer decides where to get a haircut, what is the number one... Like for me, it's I go to the same person every single time and I know that they cut my hair well. But am I the norm or am I an outlier? It depends, kind of the answer. When you have those relationships like that and you've been going to the same person, it doesn't matter if they go to salon A or salon B, you're probably going to follow them. So that's one type of relationship. That's honestly, it's more in the barbering community, I would say, than the value brand haircut space who you go to but that's more common in the barbering space for men. Right. For women, yeah, it's extremely common for women because they have a specific color that they want for their hair or specific style that they want. So they follow a stylist to different locations. Being in the value branded space, and this is why I got into the value branded space, is more people around their focus is, I want a quick haircut that's a good haircut that is for a fair price and someplace that I can get into and get out of relatively quickly. I don't necessarily want the cheapest and quickest, but I want something that's a fair spend. And that's where we sit from a brand perspective. Is it the norm? I would say it's half of the norm, probably. The other half is I want to go get a haircut. I want to go get one now because I have time right now. And I want to go to a place that's going to give me a good haircut for a fair price. And that's where we sit. That makes sense. And I'm probably a year or two away from getting the type of haircut that I don't need a special stylist for. I can totally see that just experience, cost, and convenience are going to be my Well, I'll tell you, the ways I've been quoted around this is kind of interesting. When you start to look at money and finance and things like that, a $20 haircut lasts just as long as a $50 haircut. And to say that you can line people up and say, you got a $20 haircut and you got a $50 haircut is a farce. 
right? It's the same training, same people doing that. And ironically, the people that work for somebody like me, where in the Midwest, we have a $20 haircut versus a $50 haircut. They've got the exact same training. And those people that work for me on a $20 haircut, we train them, we take care of them. They're going to make more money working for us than they are doing a $50 haircut. So it's this interesting dynamic around volume and around pay and things like that and kind of what goes on in the market. So it's kind of an interesting situation. Yeah, I mean, I can give you more detail if you're interested, but that's kind of an interesting dynamic around how do you win people like that, maybe like yourself who goes and spends 50 bucks on a haircut with your gal or guy that you've had a relationship with for 10 years. How do we win those people into our brand and keep them? Because it might be that your stylist goes on vacation for a month and they're not available when you want to go get a haircut or they're gone on a two-week vacation and not available when you want a haircut. You don't want to wait. So you go down the street. If you get a great experience for half the price that you did there, you might consider coming back to us again in the future. Well, and then it's also related to recruiting this. If you recruit Armand, then I'm coming right. to you. Right. So what have been, from your purview, successful recruiting tactics that corporate has been investing in? That corporate's been invested in? So that we've from my been understanding in. of what you said, corporate pre-COVID was focused on building brand, driving consumers. Post-COVID has been focused more so on recruiting, if I understood what you were saying correctly. Well, recruiting and branding. So and still branding. doing some marketing yeah. and online advertising, things like that. So they've spent a lot of time around the online community and making sure that the brand is still there and focusing on the brand so people recognize it, things like that. So that's really where corporate spends their time. They've given us some tools on the recruiting side, but tools is not enough to recruit. It's nice to have those tools to use as a recruiting engine and have it take advantage of some of that national branding and posting online. And so if you go look for a salon and that's out there in your search history, then you're going to be pushing advertisements around come work for Supercut. So those kinds of things corporate takes care of. The actual recruiting effort at the localized level franchisees take care of. And so from a franchise perspective, we've done a variety of things in the local community. Some of them work really well and some of them don't. Yeah. Now shifting to local and what you're focused on, I guess we should also look at it as a pre-COVID and post-COVID world. What were you focused on pre-COVID? What were your success metrics and what are they now? Honestly, from a local perspective, they didn't change for me. I know what works. And so it's always been that focus and it'll always stay that focus. I mean, the whole thing could change. I mean, it could turn on here and we could have robots cutting hair sometime in the future or something like that. But until that <laughs> happens, it's going to stay the same for us. And so I'm single-mindedly focused around two things. And I don't deviate from it. And it is first and most importantly, is new customers coming in the door. People that haven't been in our store ever or haven't been in our store in the last 12 months. So that is single-mindedly our focus. Every dollar that I spend from a marketing perspective is tracked around that. You could talk to any of our marketers. And if they've worked with me for more than one contract, they know that. And they know that's how I'm going to come to that conversation prepared. It's how your media perform in our market. So and I'm going to compare you against your peers in the market. And then secondarily, with that spend, knowing that it's going to do two things, it's going to bring new customers in the door. And it's also going to bring repeat customers back into the store. So that's the second focus is I want to buy new customers coming into the store and then I want to spend money to keep customers coming back in the store. Because there's a certain percentage of customers that come see us in a value branded space that are only going to come in if there's a coupon available. Like you go to Kroger, which is a local Midwest grocer, only going to buy oatmeal if there's a coupon available. Same kind of thing for haircuts. You're only going to go get a haircut if there's a coupon out there available. Right. Or if you're a guy like me, your wife hands you a coupon and says, Hey, you need a haircut. Go get a haircut at Supercuts. They have a coupon right now. So, to that point, is it the same tactic 
that gets a net new customer in the door as it is to get that person coming back? Is it going to be a coupon for both of those groups of people? For the most part, it's always a coupon in the value brand haircut space. Yes. For the most part, it's always a coupon. How you deliver that coupon, whether on social media or some online medium or direct or shared mail is dependent on a couple of things. One is the maturity of your store. How long has your store been around? What kind of relationship do you have in the community where it is? Because everything is hyper-local in the value brand salon space. Like Your store has a relationship to the community and people talk about that relationship and whether it's a good location or a bad location. Not necessarily about the stylist all the time at that level, the employees that are there, but is it a good location to go to or a bad location to go to? So it's hard to overcome that bad relationship at the hyper-local level. So you've got to do different things to overcome that. In my space, I've done some smaller and some larger acquisitions and tried to turn around stores and been successful and unsuccessful in some of those locations around turning around that hyper-localized relationship to the local community. So, And you use different mediums around that with direct mail and shared mail and online advertising, things like that. So, Which channel or channels have you found to be most effective for driving net new customers and separately for driving repeat customers? So for net new customers and opening a new store. So if I build a store and it's brand new, a new strip center gets built. I built a store in that strip center in the community. I'm going to start with a significant spend around direct mail. And when I say direct mail, what that means to me is an address, a specialized printed address going to a household that's got a higher valued coupon on a thicker medium printed postcard size piece that's going to go to that home. And it's going to have anywhere from one to four offerings printed on that with a model print. So it's going to have a pretty face. It's going to have four coupons that are typically time bound three. And I found successful for me, three of them being a haircut coupon and one of them being a high valued service that we offer in that salon that I'm Hmm. trying to use that I'm already spending the money to get the coupons out there. So I'm putting that high value one, which I know I'm not going to get a ton of redemption on, but those are customers that if I win them into the store, they're going to keep coming back on a regular basis to our store. And that's primarily for us, it's primarily women's hair color. So one of the differentiators that we have in our business versus our competition is we do color services for women. And our brand, a lot of women don't look at our brand from a color perspective if they're not already an existing customer. So if we can get them to come in and try us, they'll have a great experience and they'll continue to come back into our brand because they get a great service at a value price. And it's the same color or better than what they're getting at their high-priced salon they're at today. So if I can buy that by spending the money already and getting customers to come in and get a haircut, then it's a good spend. I wouldn't spend that money just to do that on its own. Yeah, That's getting new customers in. That's a new store that's opening. And then over time, and what we'll do is we'll have a we'll have a huge discount and we'll time bound those coupons to where the first coupon is a huge discount. It's got a two-week window on it. So we got that momentum, come get that coupon right away. And then we time bound another one 30 days after that. And we time bound another one 30 days after that. So that's about a 90-day window. Think of it that way, that those coupons are bound around. And then so that's a huge discount. And then Somewhere after that 90-day window, depending on how successful that first run is, we'll do a couple of things. What I do is I drop that first one with an analytic drop as well. So I get a barcode, an individualized barcode on each of those coupons, and then I'll run an analytics against it with my marketer, and I'll find out what's the demographic in this community that's coming to my salon. And then I will decide based on what I see from a demographics that are coming in, whether or not that next drop that I do, I want to do 
another huge discount or I want to go up in price a little bit and not do as large of a discount? And do I want to do any suppression? So the people that use the coupon the first time, do I want to suppress them in the next drop or do I want to keep them as part of that drop? And that's not the same in every store. It depends on what kind of redemption we get, what the demographics look like, things like that. There's certain demographics that, and from a marketing perspective, a lot of the world doesn't like to talk about demographics now. Sometimes it's a little bit taboo, but in the marketing space, it matters. So looking at that demographics in the community that we're in, I already know it predominantly because I already did that analysis work whenever we built the store. But now who am I getting to come into the store? So I take a look at that and then I figure out whether I want to do suppression or I just want to do another big, massive drop. And so I make that decision and that's another direct mail drop. And so that's, think of that another 90 days. And so that gets me into somewhere in the six to nine month range, depending on if I had a break between the first drop and the second drop. It's taxing on employees to do those types of drops because I will just absolutely bombard them with that because I do a large drop. And so it's taxing on the employee. So I prefer in that case to give them a little bit of a breather in there and then ramp them back up, hype them back up, cheer them on because they make a ton of money doing it as well, but it's very taxing. And then do another big direct mail drop and decide again around the suppression. So we do that. And then after that, we start to transition. Typically, we transition back into shared mailing. Then we get into a cycle. Then we get into a rhythm. So we start to hit that rhythm cycle then around, do we do shared mail every quarter? Do we do it only at peak times for the value branded salon business? Or do we do shared mail on a regular rhythm? And then do we do direct mail around peak times? Do I have enough staff in a store to be able to just do a continual bombardment and driving customers in and driving customers in? Sometimes staffing can be a little bit of a challenge in a store. And if you're not overstaffed in a store, you're not staffed. To, if you're staffed only to be able to handle your regular volume coming into a store, I have to go hire staff to bring them on to be able to handle a drop like that. If we're doing 1,100 haircuts or 2,000 haircuts a month in a store, I can drive that to 3,000 for marketing, but the staff can't handle it. I've got to go hire right. staff to be able to handle that. So interesting. So direct mail does work. It does. Yeah. People think direct mail's dead and stuff like that, but it's not the case. Even in today's space, direct mail really does work well. There's a few businesses that it works really well in. It works really well in the haircut space, which we're in. Value Branded Salon works really well in the pizza space as well. So if you're a pizza franchise, if you look in your mail, you're still getting a ton of coupons around pizza. And why? Because it works. No. So it must work for credit cards too, because I have an offer for a new credit card every single day. They make so much money. They just hit everything. It's the hit all button. It's kind of like the pharmaceutical space. They take everything that they're allowed to do. They do it. Same thing in the financial space. Yeah. Fred, this has been, we're over on time and you're extremely busy, but this has been really interesting. Just thinking about the nuances between expectations and you're the first person that's come on the show that represents the owner of local stores. And you're the true economic buyer and thinking about it from your lens versus the lens of other people that have come on the show, which are often the champion using medic framework and how at the end of the day, you want to drive sales and you want to bring people. And it's just interesting to hear your perspective on it and even more enlightening to hear what's been effective. And I'm going to leave you a question slash idea. Every single time I go to the dentist, the last thing that happens after I get my cleaning, I book my next cleaning. Why doesn't that happen? Or maybe it does, certain salons. But like, why isn't that just part of the process to, to book your next appointment four weeks from now? It is for us. Oh, that's great. All right. Amazing. Yeah. You're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I need to start going to Supercuts, apparently. It's just low-hanging fruit. Awesome. 
Well, if that's the case, though, then why even need to coupon for returning customers? Is there a big drop off like after they book yeah. that appointment? Yeah, well, and even some people won't book an appointment, right? So you only get a certain percentage of people that will book an appointment. A lot of people in the value branded space, again, the mentality is I need a haircut and I have time right now. So I'm going to go get one right now. And so there's a lot of that focus around the right now mentality. You find that people that are booking appointments are ones that are more focused around their appearance. And it's more, again, towards the higher net worth this is where the demographics come into play. So it's higher net worth people that are focused on their appearance and they have a specific haircut that they want. They have a specific mm. stylist that they want to see and or they have a specific style that they're trying to color match to as a woman or a guy if you get your hair colored. So you realize when you get your hair colored that you've got to come back and touch up your roots and redo it every four weeks. And so you're booking that out every four weeks. Or you leave and you're calling in two weeks when you know what your schedule is going to be two weeks out. So it's kind of one of those situations. Got it. Huh. Makes sense. Well, I guess it wasn't such an interesting concept, but I love that you're already doing it. Fred, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was... Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. And we will talk to you very soon. Thank you, Fred. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Unaided, the brand building podcast with Fred Punky. As a recap, we discussed the formula for success in the franchise space, how corporate marketing objectives differ from local marketing objectives, and how Fred continues to grow his very successful business. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. See you next time, everyone. Play on. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow League Side on LinkedIn and Instagram at League Side underscore. See you next time.